Today on the Matt Wall Show, leftist protesters are planning a major demonstration at my Texas A&M event tomorrow. Uh, fortunately, they wrote down their whole plan, and I have the document, which I will share with you today. It's pretty great. Also, it turns out that some of the people trying to cancel Joe Rogan have said some edgy things themselves in the past. This is what happens when you join the cancel mob. Eventually, it turns around on you. Plus, Toyota puts out an ad hailing Colin Kaepernick and rewriting history at the same time. And Biden's first year in office sees the most police, police officers killed in the line of duty since 1995. I wonder why that happened. And our daily cancellation, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian are in a public feud over their daughter's social media use. Who is right? Who is wrong in that dispute? We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I hate being lied to. Happens enough with the left that it it shouldn't be happening with my food. Turns out that 85% of the grass-fed beef in the United States is imported from overseas. And here's the lie. These foreign products are often labeled product of USA since they're minimally processed here. Uh, You know, they kind of, they come here and then they're supposedly processed and that's how they get away with being called products of the USA. Don't pay a premium for low-quality foreign meat. Good Rancher sells 100% American meat and delivers it to your door for a great price. They only sell 100% American meat sourced from local American farms. Their beef is prime and upper choice, the highest quality possible. They've got ribeyes, T-bones, New York strips, and more. Good Ranchers takes the guesswork out of the grocery store meat aisle. And also, by the way, this stuff is just damn delicious, can I add as well. Head on over to GoodRanchers.com Walsh to solve your meat problem once and for all. Get the transparency, quality, and cuts that you've been craving. Order now with code Walsh to get $30 off your box. Now is the time to support American farms and ranches. They're hurting and you're hungry. Solve both of those problems with a box of American meat delivered. Whoever buys the meat in your house needs to go to GoodRanchers.com Walsh today. Well, as you all know, I am but a humble and shy podcaster. There's nothing I hate more than attention, especially attention from my ideological adversaries. I find it quite uh, frightening to be confronted by them. Sure, I, I may have a funny way of showing it sometimes, like at St. Louis University, where we went outside to confront a mob of angry protesters to their face, or at Loudoun County, where we rented a woman's basement just so that we could go and yell at the local school board. You might see something like that and think that I enjoy this kind of thing, or even that I thrive on it. But that's a misinterpretation. I am meek and bashful on the inside. And that's why uh, I was so distressed to hear that LGBT activists are planning a major protest at my event at Texas A&M tomorrow. Now, being such a self-effacing person, I simply, I, I just hate it when the left makes a scene at my events, bringing more attention to my message and to me and putting me in the headlines and so on. It's, it's, it's terrible. I wish they wouldn't do it. I, I beg them to stop, but they just won't listen. And so it was with great horror that I was made aware of the plot they have concocted for tomorrow. Some informants over at uh, YAF sent me internal documents where the protesters have helpfully laid out their plan point by point and even um, describe ahead of time the disguises they'll be wearing in order to get into the event. Indeed, their their plan is uh, to infiltrate the event from the inside, disrupt it, shout me down, and generally cause a big scene. And, And again, I hate big scenes. It's the thing I hate the most. Don't be fooled by the fact that I go out of my way to put myself in the middle of such scenes, sometimes risking my own physical safety to do so. Still, I I hate it. And that's why I'm begging the leftist activists not to carry out this plan. Please do not bring more publicity to my event and to me and to the message that I have. Please, I'm asking for your mercy. Don't do it. Now, referring to the document titled Layout of the Walkout, 
It begins with step one, which is to reserve a ticket to the event, uh, which are free, by the way, and anyone can get a ticket. They want to claim as many of the tickets for themselves as they can ahead of time in order to prevent people who actually want to listen to the talk from being able to do so. And then it continues, quote unquote, step two, show up at MSC Bethancourt Ballroom on Wednesday, February 9th at 5 p.m. wearing business casual or business formal clothing. Arriving early gives us time to form groups and ensures that our members can reserve as many seats as possible before Walsh's supporters. Business casual allows us to blend in with Walsh's supporters and should be done in addition to dressing cisgender and heterosexual passing. If you're questioned or draw attention due to your voice, appearance, or gender presentation, explain that you're attending the talk to earn credit for a political science or philosophy class. Now, uh, I have to say that I'm glad these people will be dressing appropriately for once, so that's nice. Though I do find it a little bit funny that they think my supporters all walk around in business casual or business formal attire. I don't even dress that way to my own events. I'll be there in a flannel. I'm also quite interested in this plan to dress cisgender or heterosexual passing. I guess that leaves me, I guess that means leave the, uh, the fishnet and assless chaps at home. All for the best, I suppose. In fact, just because I'm a generous person, I will actually try to help these activists. I'm going to help you. If you're planning to infiltrate my event and you want to blend in with cisgender and heterosexual passing clothing, all you have to do is wear white t-shirts with I'm a heterosexual in big red letters across the front. That's the best way to blend in. That's how all, that's how we heterosexuals dress. It's just what we do. It's how we identify other members of our tribe. And we oftentimes will go up to someone and say, hey, bro, you hetero? And then they'll, they'll open up their jacket to show the t-shirt and we'll fist bump and say, hell yeah, hetero for life. In fact, make sure to do that at the event. Exactly that. Um, while you're kind of mingling with the crowd. What you could do is j- just walk up to people and say, hey, fellas, just doing my cisgender hetero thing. What about you? And when everyone hears that, they're going to know that you're one of us. Also, one other quick tip. Um, oftentimes we'll wear clown noses. Just a big, bright red clown noses. So make sure to wear them as well. And a wig also wouldn't hurt. Although I suppose the clown wig might be indistinguishable from your usual hairstyle. So just just the nose will be fine. Glad I can help. Now back to the document, it says, if you bring a bag or purse, the bag will be searched. If you're bringing a speaker or flag, you must conceal the speaker or flag somewhere on your body. Now pausing here again, and I don't want to use my imagination too much here, but I'm not sure... I want to know how these people plan to conceal a speaker or flag on their body. I don't want to know which crevice or orifice will be used for, for, for storage in this case. But I guess this is another reason why fishnets and assless chaps are out of the question. Continuing, it says, uh, step three, find our chanter and members with portable speakers and break into groups of nine. If you're not in the group, find a buddy. We'll have one person leading chants and at least two members with portable speakers to announce the start of the walkout. Each of these people must be in groups of nine so that their groups can be arranged in seats surrounding them for safety, like so. And you can see the uh, the chart they have set up. They've got everything in a color-coordinated co- chart, which looks like they're playing Battleship or something. The document also notes that if they can't get 35 protesters to show up, they'll surrender and disband. And it's kind of sad to think of these poor people all showing up in their heterosexual outfits and then doing a head count and finding out that there's oh, no only 27 So they just turn around and walk away awkwardly. If we see a bunch of people in clown noses wandering away dejectedly, 
we'll know what happened. The document goes on with step four, explaining how they'll coordinate their seating chart. And then uh, step five, which says, quote, wait for the recording to play. Put your mask on, stand up and raise your left fist. After 10 to 20 minutes of Walsh speaking, enough time for any overflow crowd outside the room to disperse so they cannot take our place when we leave. A recording of the Star Manifesto will be played over the speakers. Star stands for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries and was the group founded by Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera to to support uh, homeless and incarcerated trans people during the gay liberation movement. Once the recording plays, if you aren't already wearing a COVID mask, please put one on so that your face is unrecognizable. Stand up and raise your left fist. What a shocker here. They plan to wear a mask, not because they actually think it will protect them from COVID, but just to conceal their identity while they cause a public disruption. If I didn't know any better, I might think that all of the shoplifters and looters in blue cities across the country are are wearing masks for the same reason, which is really a revelation because up until now, I just assumed that they were all very health conscious. In any case, we get finally to step six, where the chanting begins, and protesters are encouraged to take a screenshot of the chant lyrics so that they don't forget the words. So they're all going to pull out their phones, they're going to have the lyrics there, and they're going to start chanting. And I might have to put this up on the chalkboard for them in the room uh, just to make it easier. Um, but the chant goes as follows. You have the, first, you have the, the, uh, the leader who will say, when trans people are under attack, what do we do? And the crowd responds, stand up, fight back. Then it repeats gay and queer in place of trans. I'd say I'm a little disappointed in the chant, in the chant um, because it doesn't rhyme. Any good chant should always rhyme. Especially in this case, when a very simple edit would solve the problem. Far be it from me to offer notes to the people who are trying to shout me down at my own event. But why wouldn't the chant be, when trans people are under attack, stand up, fight back? Why? We, you don't need what do we do. Just attack them back. It rhymes. Much better. Pithier, has a better flow, it rhymes. Anyway, if all goes according to plan, they will uh, stage this demonstration about 10 to 20 minutes into my talk, cause several minutes of disruption, and then walk out. And we'll just resume the event as scheduled. And then, because they caused a scene and turned the speaking event into a news event, I will afterwards be forced to do several local and cable news interviews where I talk about the event and also the subject I was there to speak about, thereby amplifying the very message they were trying to shut down. And we certainly wouldn't want that. You know, it almost might seem as though the truth shines brighter the more you try to suppress it. And and you might even think that the better approach for an opponent would be to engage with my message intellectually, actually try to debate my points, which they could do during the Q&A. In fact, not only can they do it during the Q&A, But if you disagree, you get to go to the front of the line. That's how much you are welcome. And you get a microphone or you could say whatever you want. And and, uh, given that I'm just a a drooling, stupid, uh, racist, homophobic, fascist bigot, it should be really easy to embarrass me. I didn't even go to college. These are all college students. They have more education than I do, officially anyway. So why wouldn't you take the opportunity to take the microphone and just totally humiliate me? Tear me apart. I'll have just finished speaking for 30 minutes, and you could go point by point, boom, 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 and rip it apart. The problem is it's hard to do that 
if your whole worldview is empty and vacuous and built atop a house of cards that collapses under the slightest intellectual scrutiny. I suppose your only choice then is to chant and scream and run away, plugging your ears. So good luck with that. I'll see you tomorrow. Now let's get to our five headlines. As inflation continues, it's important to keep your budget and financial goals top of mind. Think about the things you can do today to come out ahead, like refinancing your mortgage. If it's not on your to-do list, it should be because you could be paying a lot less for your home right now. And I know uh, just the people to help you do that. That's American Financing. I tell you about them all the time. They're a family-owned mortgage lender that's known for its custom home loans, and it's no-pressure approach to lending. From lower rates to shorter terms and even debt consolidation, they do whatever it takes to set you up for financial success. American Financing can help you save up to $1,000 a month, plus tens of thousands long-term. So why not learn more? If you start soon, you may get to skip two payments and could close in as little as 10 days. 866-569-4711 is the number that you got to call. That's 866-569-4711. Close in as little as 10 days and solve a lot of problems all at once. Or if you want to, you can visit AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS, 182334, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. All right. Um, wearing my heterosexual passing clothing today. Uh, you know, that's flannels always. Really, that's, I, I think the t-shirt with the, with I'm heterosexual is the best way to go. But, you know, also flannels always a good, always a good choice as well. Um, this is from the Daily Wire. It says, former Democrat presidential candidate Andrew Yang on Sunday posted tweets in support of popular podcast host Joe Rogan. But hours later, deleted the posts over left-wing backlash and issued a Twitter thread apologizing for hurting people. Um, this has been the story with Joe Rogan is that early on, there were you know a whole slew of prominent people who, uh, it, oftentimes people who have been on Joe Rogan's show, as I believe Andrew Yang has, I assume he has, not sure. Um, but prominent people early on came out in support of Joe Rogan. And this was back when he was mainly being accused of spreading misinformation or whatever. And you have people like Andrew Yang and also Dwayne Johnson, The Rock Dwayne Johnson, other prominent people uh, came out in support of him and said, hey, you know, we stand for him. Um, and then when the when the N-word compilation dropped, all of these little cowards scurried away, including The Rock, who's a, another example of this. Um, but this is what Yang posted. He says, I don't think Joe Rogan is a racist. The man interacts with and works with black people literally all the time. Do I know black friends of Joe's who would, who would swear by him? Yes, I do, he added. That's what he originally said. It says, Yang, who, was a, who has appeared on Rogan's podcast okay, in the past, was met with left-wing anger. Um, notably, the Democrat National Committee Chair Jamie Harrison replied to Yang, Dude, seriously? You're joking, right, Andrew? Is that now the new defining line? Working with folks? Yang quickly deleted the two posts and then issued an apology. So he, uh, I don't know how long these tweets stayed up, but he took a stand. He took a stand for Joe Rogan and uh, based on, you know, speaking for his character, based on what he knew about, he took a stand for five minutes and that was enough. And then he deleted the the tweets and he said, I like to believe the best of people, especially if I've met and spent time with that person. Sometimes it makes me miss something. I think we should have the capacity to forgive people, whether a podcaster or a mayor, if they mess up. Maybe it's because I mess up too. Racism is real, deep, corrosive, and even lethal. I know that. 
I made a mistake in an earlier tweet tonight that downplayed these realities. I deleted the tweet because it was wrong-headed. It also hurt people, which is never my intent. It hurt people. Who did it hurt, Andrew? You sent out a tweet. So the first way you know that nobody was hurt is that it was a tweet. And nobody has ever been injured from a tweet, ever. Um, there's never, to my knowledge, been anyone who's called 911 and said, I need medical attention. Oh, what happened? What's wrong? Uh, there was a tweet. That's never happened. But even if a tweet could somehow manifest itself physically and assault someone and cause physical harm, um, probably a tweet where you're simply saying, oh, that guy isn't racist. I, I don't think that would pose any real threat to anybody. But he says, it hurt people, which is never my intent. I'm sorry. I'm learning and I appreciate those who reached out to express their feelings. I like to believe the work I've done these past years had the goal of uplifting everyone, particularly those on the outside looking in for any reason, be it poverty or marginalization or race. I've always wanted to help those with the least. Uh, I've always wanted to help those with the least the most. Okay. I've always wanted to, I've always most wanted to help those with the least. Okay. Um, I'm going to keep doing all I can for a more equitable, fair, and just country. That means for everyone, universal basic income, income, democracy reform, and unity are how we get there. Well, you can't have a lot of unity, Yang, if you're uh, you know, going to turn on people and throw them under the bus after five minutes of pressure. That's not a great way to build unity. One way you build unity is uh, through loyalty. Not a lot of loyalty there. Also, unfortunately, Yang never promised to do the work. So this doesn't, th- th- he's got to reissue the apology because he forgot a couple of the talking points. He, he hit on most of them, talking about, oh, I'm sorry, people that are hurt and marginalized communities and all that nonsense. But you got to also prompt, I promise to do the work. He forgot to mention that. And he also somehow, this is a big oversight, uh, he never said anything about lived experiences. He forgot to talk about the lived experiences of all those people who were hurt by the tweet. Um. This is uh, why I say that cowardice is the great pandemic in our country. The thing, the thing that plagues us most is just an epidemic of total, absolute cowardice. And it's an important thing to know also, just, just so you know what you're getting into and you know what to expect, is that when the, when the cancel mob comes for you, as it will, you know, because it comes, it comes for everybody eventually, um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's people that are at the top, people who are the most visible, like Joe Rogan, who are the most successful in their fields, who are, who their heads are sticking above the rest the most, they're going to get cut down first, but eventually they get down to everybody. And when it happens, you just have to know that most people are cowards. Most people that you think are your friends are also cowards. And they're all going to scurry away and hide and not say anything in your defense. So it's just you just have to know that going in. I mean, Joe Rogan is certainly learning that. And it's an important lesson to learn. You, know, you, you, it's, you, you have very few friends. If you think you have 50 friends, you actually have maybe like two. And all it takes, and if you think I'm wrong, yeah, I know my friends, they would all stand by me. It just, all it takes is the mob knocking at your door. And then you turn around, and you see how many people just ran out the back. I got to go. See ya. Almost everybody, except for a couple. But as these um, 
people, you know, join in this effort to cancel uh, uh, cancel Joe Rogan, you know, information is coming out about some of these cancelers. So this is also from the Daily Wire. It says best selling author Don Winslow has been participating in a pressure campaign to cancel popular podcast host Joe Rogan, honing in on Rogan's use of the N-word in past podcast episode, wherein the host was often quoting others or speaking about the word generally. Um, in fact, it was Winslow's tweet to Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock, that seemed to spark the actor to publicly pull his support for Rogan. Because uh, The Rock originally came out, as another one, as, as mentioned, it came out in support of Joe Rogan. And then Don Winslow sent a tweet to The Rock and said, Dear The Rock, you're a hero to many people and using your platform to defend Joe Rogan, a guy that used and laughed about using the N-word dozens of times, is a terrible use of your power. Have you actually listened to this man's many racist statements about black people? And then Johnson responded, Dear Don Winslow, thank you so much for this. I hear you as well as everyone here, 100%. I was not aware of his N-word use prior to my comments, but now I've become educated to his complete narrative. Learning moment for me. Um, but then things took a, a turn for Winslow over the weekend when detractors looked through some of the author's own books, which are rife with the N-word. And then there are people uh, on Twitter going through and pulling out many examples of uh, this guy using the N-word in his books. Is that okay? I mean, all things being equal, objectively, if you're an author and you are telling a story... And there's a character in the story who uses the N-word. Maybe you have a racist character or something, and he's using the N-word. That's, that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Or even you're telling a story set in, in history, set in a time when this word was used more commonly. Uh, whatever the case is, it's a story. And stories are supposed to reflect life. And this word's part of life. So objectively speaking, that should be fine. But if Joe Rogan can't say it when quoting someone, or when, as it, as it mentions, as it says there, when he's talking about the word, if he can't say it there, then, then you can't say it when you're telling a story. And now the cancel mob's coming after him too. Because this is what happens. You know, everyone should know this. You join the mob because someone you don't like is being cut down or someone who you're jealous of and you resent because uh, because you're jealous of their success. And I think actually with Joe Rogan, that's a big part of the story for the media. Uh, because Joe Rogan, by the way, he's not and never has been some kind of right wing uh, ideologue. He's not some far right guy. Most of his views are pretty left. He's kind of like center left. You know, I think you would you, that's where you would put him. When you, when you take all of his politics into account. So there's no reason really, based on his views, why the left and the media should hate him so much. But they do because, he, number one, he's given voice to, he's given platforms to people who are farther on the right. He also has questioned the COVID narrative. And also, though, I mean, we know about that. That's, that's obviously a big part of what motivates this. But also, he's very, very successful. And he, he draws a, a larger audience, by far, exponentially larger audience than CNN does. And they look at that and they're, they're filled with envy. But what you should know is that when you have the mob going after someone because they're envious or whatever the reason is, and you join them, you know, you're, you're with all of these other hyenas, all these other vultures, 
picking at the car- carcass. Eventually, they're going to pick that carcass clean and they're going to look for another target. They're going to look for some more food and they're going to turn around and look at you. And when that happens, you're not going to have anybody defending you because you don't deserve it. All right, moving on. Here's some irony for you. Justin Trudeau uh, speaking about the truckers who are taking a stand against tyranny. Here's, uh, here's what Justin Trudeau has to say about them. Listen to this. Individuals are trying to blockade our economy, our democracy, and our fellow citizens' daily lives. It has to stop. By the way, Justin Trudeau, I don't know if you've seen some of this stuff online. I don't know if there's any truth to it whatsoever. I've done no research into it at all. But uh, the meme right now is that Justin Trudeau is the love child of Fidel Castro. And uh, uh, there are a lot of similarities, just ideologically speaking, so you can see that. But if you look at the the side-by-side comparisons of Justin Trudeau and Fidel Castro, especially Fidel Castro when he was Justin Trudeau's age, and then then younger, you know, compare the two when they were both 20, compare them when they were younger, and it is uncanny. I mean, the, the similarity, they are identical. You give Justin Trudeau a long beard and you give him the communist hat and all that kind of stuff and the uniform, he, he not only sounds just like Fidel Castro and has all, has all the same views, but looks just like him. And this is one of those things that may be misinformation, it may be totally false, but I, I choose to believe it. This is a story that I choose to believe. Um, and anyway, aside from that, yeah, of course, the irony here is that he's accusing the, tucker, the, the truckers, the individuals of um, blockading, you know, preventing people from living their daily lives, uh, blockading the economy doing all these things, which, of course, I don't need to, say, need to say it, that's exactly what he did to his own country. So there might be a little bit more jealousy here, where, where basically Trudeau is saying, um, Castro Jr. is saying, no, you're, you're not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do that. Preventing people from living their daily lives, uh, shutting down the economy. No, that's, that's my job. That's not your job, is what Trudeau says. Castro Jr. All right, moving on. Toyota just uh, put out a a radio ad, speaking of communists, hailing Colin Kaepernick. Uh, And this is pretty extraordinary in the the number of falsehoods that they're able to jam into like a one-minute radio ad. Listen to this. Toyota proudly presents, in their own words, Colin ran Kaepernick. A two-time Super Bowl quarterback and NFL record holder first knelt on one knee during the national anthem in 2016 as a sign of respect to the military and a symbol of protest against police shootings. It's to bring awareness and make people you know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust, people aren't being held accountable for, and that's something that needs to change. That's something that you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all. And it's not happening for all right now. He changed the world and sparked a peaceful form of protest that continues around the world. In their own words, proudly presented by Toyota. Toyota, let's go places. Okay. Uh, where to begin? First of all, Colin Kaepernick was not a two-time Super Bowl quarterback. He was in the Super Bowl one time. So we're starting off right out right off the bat here with the falsehood. 
where they're they're spotting him an extra Super Bowl. I guess just this is like an affirmative action thing, and you know we'll, we'll give him an extra one, even though he wasn't in it. He was in it in spirit. In fact, Colin Kaepernick, his actual career trajectory is that he came into the league and um, he he played like uh, half a season. He was taken over for I think he was taken over for Alex Smith, if I remember correctly, and um, and he he had a he had a, a good season. He he kind of ran out of the gates. He was on fire. He had a good season and um, goes to the Super Bowl and. Doesn't have a great game there, but he's but he's uh, seems to be a pretty good athlete. And after that point, he just it's it's a downhill trajectory from there. So he was a shining star that burned out very very quickly. And and in fairness to him, certainly not the first one in the history of professional sports or or in the NFL. It's pretty common you have these kind of one hit wonders, which is what he was. And by the time he left and decided to go on his uh, protest, he was. You know, sitting basically a, a bench rider and having a horrible season and couldn't win any games and, and all the rest of it. So that's the first problem. Second problem is they claim in the ad that he was taking a knee to honor the troops. What? He he never even pretended that's what he was doing. So we're protesting the flag and the anthem to honor the troops. This is what if you if you're you know on the left and you're in the media, you're a corporation like Toyota, um, you control the narrative, which means that you control history basically. Because what is history? You know, history is is a story that we tell ourselves. That's history is these are things that already happened, and so you can't go see it for yourself anymore. You have to rely on the stories that we hear. And uh, the, the only interest, we, we know that history can be rewritten, sort of the story can be rewritten. You, you hope that the story you hear about history it pretty well reflects what actually happened. But we know that history can be rewritten. And usually the, the, the farther in the past something is, the easier it is to rewrite it. What's interesting these days is we can see how history is rewritten right in front of us. And it doesn't have to be ancient history, very recent history, something that happened yesterday. We will watch as the the historians of yesterday rewrite that story. And that's what they're doing now with Colin Kaepernick. This is one example of that. (laughs) He was protesting in favor of the troops. All right. Uh, speaking of the NFL, so we know this story. We, we talked yesterday at Daily Cancellation about Brian Flores. He was the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins. And uh, he got fired because he was, was not, not achieving what they wanted, to, wanted him to achieve. And as we talked about yesterday, it's very, very easy to get fired as a head coach in the NFL. I think personally that many times owners are, are too quick to fire coaches because they're so impatient. They want to win right now. And that's how teams like the Dolphins end up cycling through head coaches because no one is having the success and they're not letting anyone, they're not giving anyone a chance to kind of settle into the role and build the organization or rebuild it as the case may be. Um, But that's not something that afflicts only black coaches. White and black coaches can be fired at the drop of a hat. They can even have a winning season and get fired. So Flores gets fired and um, he could have went right away to another team and probably got a head coaching job. At worst, he goes and becomes an offensive coordinator somewhere 
for a year and then gets back into the head coaching ranks. That's another very common thing these coaches will do. Uh, But instead of doing that, he decided to sue the NFL and several teams claiming that they're racist against him, that there's some sort of systemic racism against black coaches, even though he was himself a black coach. And not only that, but he got his head coaching job at the age of 38, which makes him not the youngest NFL head coach in history. I think the youngest was like 32, which is pretty absurd. But um, he's certainly on the younger end. I mean, there are many people, including a lot of white coaches who are in the league for decades, and they don't get their first head coaching job until they're in their 50s or 60s. And there are plenty who never get that opportunity. So you're in the league for comparatively few years, and at the age of 38, you get your first head coaching gig? And yet there's systemic racism preventing you because of your skin color from getting head coaching gigs? While there are dozens of white coordinators who have had success and they're in their 50s and 60s and have never had that opportunity? Makes no sense at all. But um, meanwhile, you know, there there are a bunch of teams right now looking for head coaches. And um, one of those teams is the Texans. And I think let's let's put this up clip two here. Um, They just hired a a coach, Lovey Smith. It says, uh, breaking news, the Texans are expected to hire former Buccaneers and Bears head coach Lovey Smith as their own head coach. Now, part of the problem with the uh, the race hustling that's going on right now is that any time a black coach gets a job in the NFL, there's always going to be the suspicion that they got the job because the owner didn't want to be accused of being racist by hiring a white guy. This is one of the problems with affirmative action, with the Rooney rule in the NFL that requires teams to interview minority candidates, even if they already know they want to hire somebody else. Um, It's the same criticism that we've made, uh, rightfully so, about Joe Biden's approach to the Supreme Court opening. You say ahead of time, I'm going to hire a black woman specifically. Well, eventually when you nominate whoever that's going to be, it's reasonable for all of us to wonder whether that person actually deserved that appointment on the merits or whether they got that position because of their demographics. And the same thing is happening in the NFL now. And in this case, you have, you know, Lovey Smith, as it happens, uh, he's had head coaching jobs in the league for, uh, through a, a large part of the last 20 years. He's, um, his overall head coaching record is at, a, is at about 500. I mean, he's lost about as many games as he's won. He's only won three playoff games in like 15 years of coaching. And uh, out of all of the candidates available, he's the one you hire. Make somebody ask questions. Is this a diversity hire? Or in spite of his mediocrity, did you just decide that, you know, we'll give him another chance anyway? Who knows? But then what about Brian Flores himself? Now, he says he's going on this campaign. He's suing the NFL because he wants to give opportunities to minority coaches. And that's what he cares about so much. So is, is he satisfied? I mean, he sees, yeah, he didn't get that job with, the, uh, with the, the Texans, but another black coach did. So you think Brian Flores, at least, as a humanitarian, as an activist, cares about racial equality. Should he just be thrilled by this? Well, here's a statement from his lawyers. Um, Mr. Flores is happy to hear that the Texans have hired a black head coach, Lovey Smith, as Mr. Flores' goal in bringing his case is to provide real opportunities for black and minority head coaches 
uh, to be considered for coaching and executive positions within the NFL. However, we would be remiss not to mention that Flores was one of three finalists for the Texans head coach position. And after a great interview and mutual interest, it's obvious that the only reason Mr. Flores was not selected was his decision to stand up against racial inequality across the NFL. So their message is, yeah, great, you, uh, you hired a black guy, but it was the wrong one. I forgot to mention, I want you to hire uh, black head coaches, but specifically black head coaches that are me. That's, that's what I'm really concerned about here. What a shock. All right, one other note here is from the New York Post. It says, more cops were killed in the line of duty during President Biden's first year of office than any other year since 1995. And a law enforcement group says the driving force is the growing anti-cop sentiment, according to the new report. 73 officers were intentionally killed in the line of duty in 2021. A nearly 59% increase over 2020, where 46 cops were murdered. We believe it's a combination of the George Floyd protests, uh, riots, if you will, a general feeling of a preference for less law enforcement and less prosecution, less policing. This according to Jason Johnson, president of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund and a 20-year police veteran. So we've got 73 officers who were killed in the line of duty. And um, by the way, that far, far outpaces the number of um, unarmed black men who were killed by police. Um, it's ex- this, the number of, of uh, officers killed is exponentially greater than that. And why does it happen? Well, one, we have the general atmosphere of lawlessness that's being encouraged in cities across the country. And you have these Soros-funded DAs who are intentionally putting violent and dangerous people back onto the streets and basically daring them to do something like kill a police officer. Because you can commit armed robbery. I mean, in New York now, that's a, a essentially, essentially a misdemeanor. You can commit armed robbery. You can commit burglary. You can steal from people. You can assault random people. You can, you can do drugs. You, or you can deal drugs, rather. You do all gang activity, all this kind of stuff. Steal cars. And the DAs will just filter you back out into the community, no matter how many crimes you commit. And what they say is, until you do something so heinous that I, as a Soros-funded DA, who is fundamentally and philosophically opposed to law and order, until even I am forced to put you in prison. As much as I would like to even still keep you out on the street, even after you kill a police officer, even I am forced to put you in prison. That's what these DAs are saying. And that's a big part of the uh, big part of the picture here. These police officers go out into the community, um, communities that they're still protecting and serving, even though they're despised by the very communities they're putting their, themselves on, on their lives on the line for. They find violent and dangerous people, arrest them, ship them off to the court system and say, hey guys, here you go, found another one. And the court system says, no, nah, no thanks, don't want them. Puts them back on the street. So that's part of the story. And then the other part of the story, of course, is the narrative promoted by the media and by guys like Joe Biden that there are racist cops prowling the street looking for black people to kill. So you want to talk about misinformation, like dangerous misinformation that's getting people killed? That is not just an example of that, but that is the prime number one example. Misinformation that's getting people killed is the claim that there is an epidemic of racist cops murdering black people. And this is the result. 
For many people in the U.S. concerned about the cost of health insurance, there are no good options. You know, you either go out on your own with no safety net or you pay through the nose for a high deductible plan that doesn't kick in until you've spent tens, you know, spent thousands of dollars in a year. And it really feels like a scam because a lot of times it is. It's because of a broken health insurance system that's inefficient and doesn't care about the individual American or the family. But what if I told you that you don't necessarily need health insurance? Introducing CrowdHealth. It isn't health insurance. It's a community of people who care about their health, healthcare freedom, and each other at the same time. It it, uh, introduces consumerism into the market, letting you navigate the care you need without the burden of government bureaucracy on top of everything. You're free to get the care you need, and when big expenses come, the community crowdfunds the bills on your behalf. Joining CrowdHealth gives you your healthcare freedom back while also saving you thousands of dollars every year. So it's a win-win across the board. CrowdHealth is able to offer amazing prices because of its community of health-conscious members. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a community-powered alternative. Terms and conditions may apply. Let's get now to the comment section. Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. All right, you can go to dailywire.com slash... Sweet baby comments, right? Is that the... I I forgot the URL all of a sudden. Um, And you can leave your video comment. We'll start with clip nine here. Hi, Matt. In a recent video, you explained that you don't believe in ghosts because basically you don't see why God would keep the souls of dead people behind on earth to haunt stores in people's homes. But I thought Catholics believed in purgatory. And isn't purgatory one of the main justifications given for the existence of ghosts? I've heard that Catholics have had sightings of what they believe to be souls of people in purgatory uh, that basically appear as ghosts. Uh, So do you believe in purgatory? And if so, doesn't that at least give some plausibility to the idea of ghosts? Yeah, I do believe in purgatory, but there's there's no um, version of purgatory that I've ever heard where it's a a place on earth where the souls in purgatory just kind of hang out and especially if for some reason congregate in creepy looking buildings and do random things like slam doors shut and make uh, silverware th- fly across the, the, the kitchen, right? Um, now, I, I certainly believe that people have had visions of, uh, of, of souls in the afterlife. I think they've had visions of souls in heaven and hell and, and purgatory. But those are not spirits that are physically located on earth and walk sort of kind of walking around and interacting with people and... Uh, trying to scare people. That's, that's, of course, that's of course one, one of the big questions about, about ghosts, if they, if they exist, is like, what, what are they doing exactly? Is they just, they're just entertaining themselves by trying to freak people out when they stay in, uh, you know, spooky hotels or in old, uh, old homes. So yeah, I just, I, 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 that, that's my primary problem with the idea of ghosts. As I explained in the video where I was um, debunking the pro-ghost propaganda from uh, one Andrew Clavin. Yeah, my, my main problem is a theological problem. Yeah, I don't see any sort of theological uh, justification for this idea that God would keep undead people on earth to sort of just walk around and freak people out. Um, now, demons are another story, but ghosts is a different subject. And then also there's the kind of practical criticism that if these ghosts are out there and they're so common and people see them all the time, then just like Bigfoot, why have we not yet been given any solid video evidence of anything like that? I've never seen. All right, let's go to number 10. All right, Mr. Walsh. 
So I have four small children, and whenever we come to the store, I seek out shopping carts like that. I park right by them so that I don't have to go far with these little children. And then I don't feel bad leaving it wherever I got it from. So come on. Can I get away with not bringing this thing all the way back to I don't even know where? If I got, if I put it back right where I got it from. Thank you. SBG for life. Okay, first of all, I see I see the game you're playing here by keeping the camera trained on the cute kid. So you think that's going to get you sympathy points, but it won't. Can we go back to this? First of all, I like how the, the video comment section has really just become a discussion of shopping carts every single day. But um, can we, okay, just play this video again. We don't need the audio. I just, because she said, where do I return it? Can we just, can we just play the video? Let me see. Uh, where do you return it? Okay, well, I just spot, I, I spotted one cart corral, which is like 20 feet from you. And then how close is she to the actual entrance to the, right there. I can see right there. How, how far, wait, you're at Walmart. How far are you fr from the entrance of the store? I, you're maybe like 20 cars away. How long will it take you, ma'am, to traverse that great distance to leave your car at the front of the store? It, it, it would take you less than a minute, easily. Now, that adorable child of yours, he doesn't appear to be very heavy. So here's a strategy. You, you cart your child over to the front of the store. You leave your cart, and then you're saying to yourself, what about my kid? Am I leaving him at Walmart? No, you're picking your kid up and holding him, as I'm sure you've done in the past, and bringing him back to your car. You could even, try this, put the kid in the car, shut the doors, lock them, then return your cart and come back. And I know you're going to say, oh, isn't it dangerous to leave my kid in the car? What do you think's going to happen? <laughs> Bring the keys with you. Lock the door. You're going to be gone for 10 seconds. You're within sight of the car. In that time frame, what do you think's going to happen? Exactly. Uh, you think there's like a kidnapper who's just waiting, who's like crouched behind the Toyota, you know, three cars away. And as soon as you turn, he's going to dash into the car and try to steal your whole car full of kids. In the whole history of, of parking lots, how many times has that happened? That a car full of kids has been kidnapped in a parking lot because the mother was returning a shopping cart. Like, there's millions of, of potential opportunities. How many times has it happened? I ask you. How dare you? How dare you? All right. Uh, let's move to some of these written comments. So, no, you do not get an exception. And you are, of course, banned from the show. Um, let's see. Uh, John Williams says, I have to admit that my wife and I are addicted to 1883. I just really enjoy Taylor Sheridan's body of work, including Yellowstone. Well, I don't know how far you are into the show, but I, I look, that's what, that's the tragedy of 1883 is that for the first three episodes, uh, it was, it was actually really good. And I was very excited about it. And I kept, and I kept saying to my wife, like, finally, they made a show like this. I've been waiting for just a, a straightforward Western series a la uh, Lonesome Dove and classic Western. And, and it was that until it went and fell off the woke cliff. I hate to say. Um, Justin says, I ordered a bunch of the DW Valentine card day cards to send to my liberal family members. 
very good, very good usage of those uh, DW Valentines. I'm not, I'm not sure how else you, do, you would use them, but uh, that's one way to do it. And the Lonely Dragon says, we need a Should I Exist shirt for baboons. Yeah, I, I, that's one thing I discovered in, in my third world adventure, as I said yesterday, is that baboons, and this is well known in these countries, is that baboons are absolute jerks. And, you know, whereas the, the panda is useless and there's no reason for it to exist, I think with baboons, they, like, they're, they are actively a drain on society. So I think with, with pandas, we should just let them slip, off, slip from the earth and fade into extinction as they so desperately want to which is why they've stopped mating. We have to coax them into mating, make like candlelight dinners and play Marvin Gaye for them in the jungle so they'll start mating. Um, with pandas, just let, them, just let them die off. With baboons, you can make an argument for actively hunting them down and committing a sort of baboon genocide. Uh, and if you think that sounds harsh, well, go to a country where these things are. They are vicious, I'm telling you. If you haven't marked your calendar for this Thursday yet, you should. It's not only the world premiere of The Daily Wire's first original film, Shut In, but we will also be releasing the first teaser of our next film during the stream called Terror on the Prairie, which is a Western starring Gina Carano. We could be more excited to be making good on our promise of bringing you real entertainment, and we seriously hope that you tune in. Shut In is a tale of redemption and an intense, suspenseful thriller that delivers riveting action without missing a beat. Check out the trailer here. Well, the film premieres this Thursday, February 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central over at Daily Wire YouTube. Make sure you uh, click the link in the description, turn on the not notification bell so you don't miss it, because after the premiere, it'll be available to Daily Wire members only. And also join us beforehand for a very special pre-screening episode of Backstage. Join me, Ben Shapiro, Jeremy Boring, Michael Knowles, and Andrew Clavin Thursday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on Daily Wire YouTube channel. The premiere of Shut In starts at 9 p.m. Eastern on the same channel, so... Make sure to tune in before then. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today, for our daily cancellation, we must take a closer look at something that uh, may appear to be nothing but celebrity gossip on the surface. Kanye West and Kim Kardashian are going through a divorce, and, which is a development that surprises uh, only because it took seven whole years of marriage before it happened. 
I have no opinion on the divorce itself, except that you better enjoy getting divorced if you get if you marry a Kardashian to begin with. The issue of relevance today, though, is the public feud between Kanye and Kim pertaining to their eight-year-old daughter North's social media use. Now, we'll leave aside the unfortunate fact that these two decided to make their daughter, to name their daughter Northwest. At least they named her based on compass directions and not latitude and longitude coordinates. Northwest sounds better as a name than like 34 degrees north, 118 degrees west. Uh, But still, Northwest is kind of a silly name. In any case, the eight-year-old recently appeared on TikTok with her own account, uh, and she was posting videos. Kanye did not approve, and he said so publicly. And this prompted Kim to defend herself by going to TMZ, and the outlet reports, quote, Sources close to the former couple tell TMZ, North does not have her own TikTok account, nor does she have the app on her own phone any longer. Instead, we're told North can only access TikTok through a joint account on Kim's phone and only uses it in her mother's presence. Not just that, but our sources say the comments for North and Kim's account are fully disabled. We've even spoken to sources at TikTok who tell us North and Kim's account passes the company's term, terms and conditions for minor, minors. Now, here's why Kanye might be in a tiff over this. According to another source in the know, we know there was, in fact, an incident recently where North did go live on TikTok from her own phone, but our sources say Kim disciplined her over that and made the changes then. Really important reporting from TMZ. So what we can take from this is that not only does the eight-year-old have a TikTok account, but she has her own phone with internet access as well at eight years old. Now, I'm not a fan of marital disputes being aired publicly like this, especially when they have children that are directly involved. Then again, Kim Kardashian and Kanye West have never really known how to speak to each other or to anyone except through TMZ. So there's no surprise there. But putting the method of communication aside, does Kanye have a point? Is his eight-year-old daughter too young for social media? The answer, of course, is yes, obviously, without a question, without any doubt whatsoever. Your young children should not be anywhere near social media. They shouldn't have phones at all. Now, older children shouldn't really be on social media either, but the situation is even more dire the younger the child is. Also, it's much easier to control what a younger child does. An older child has more independence. She can drive. You know, She may have her own means of income. So your ability to control her is not entirely erased, but, but you have to rely more on influence than control as the child grows older. And that's kind of the, that's the process of parenting, right? Is that uh, when, when a child is very, very young, you're, you are physically controlling them a lot of the times. If you, if you want them to go somewhere, you pick them up and bring them there. So it's, you're exercising physical control. But as a child grows older, that physical control, you, you start to rely less on that and more on influence. You're trying to influence your child in a certain direction. What about at eight years old? Well, she can't go anywhere unless you take her there. She can't own anything unless you buy it. Unless you're a fully negligent parent, you should know generally where she is all the time and what she's doing, even if you're not with her every second of the day. If your eight-year-old has a phone and the internet and social media, it's because you have not only allowed her to do so, but you have funded and facilitated it. You have to pay for it. That is, you have funded and facilitated the damage that is being done to her. All that damage, you are paying for it to happen. This is very simple, really. All we need to do is make a chart, right? And this is, this is a good way to clarify a lot of things in life. Make a chart. On one side, you can list the negatives of social media use for eight-year-olds. And on the other side, list the positives. 
So let's begin with the positives. What is good about having your eight-year-old daughter on social media? What are the objective benefits? Well, this is an easy list to fill out because there's nothing on it. The closest thing to a benefit that parents will cite for their young child's social media use is that all her friends are doing it. Well, I don't want her to be left out. This is exactly the opposite of the sort of advice my parents gave me as a child when they constantly warned me that you should not do things just because your friends are doing them. If your friends are jumping off a bridge, would you do it too? Was the classic rejoinder. And of course, the answer to that was, yeah, I totally would and did jump off of bridges and other elevated structures, sometimes into water, sometimes into bushes or piles of leaves. I did it because it looked fun or because it seemed funny at the time to hurt or maim myself intentionally. Because I was, a, you know, that's, what's, that's what boys do. But social media is a different kind of bridge entirely. And once you jump off of it, you fall eternally into a bottomless pit that eats your soul a little bit at a time. The point is that kids may think something is worthwhile because their friends are doing it. Because kids are immersed completely in peer culture. All they can see is what their friends are doing. What matters most to them in the world is acceptance from their peers. It's the only thing that matters to them for a lot of these kids. It matters so much that these kids these days will, will potentially kill themselves if that approval and acceptance is withheld. That's how desperately they depend on it. And this is exactly why adults need to be adults. They need to rescue their children from this immersion. They need to see clearly where their children cannot. An adult who encourages or allows social media use on the basis that all their friends are doing it is an adult who thinks no clearer than the child he's supposed to be in charge of. Aside from the peer pressure defense, all the other positives of social media use are really arguments for mitigated negatives. And there's a whole lot of this, where you have parents arguing for something as, and making arguments as if they're listing positives, but actually they're listing mitigated negatives. So when Kim Kardashian, for example, says that she's monitoring her daughter's internet activity, she's not presenting an item for the positive column. All she's doing is arguing that the bad isn't quite as bad as her husband claims. Yeah, it's bad, but I'm monitoring it. Okay, but that's not a good. Even if I agree that you can mitigate the bad when it comes to social media use, and I fa in fact, I think that most of the time you can't. But even if I agree that you could, um, it's still not good. It it's still objectively better for them just not to be on it at all. Y you can mitigate the risk of driving drunk at 100 miles an hour down the road by wearing a seatbelt. I mean, you, you, it's, it's, if you're going to do it, it's better to do it with a seatbelt than without. But that's not an argument that, that, that says that driving 100 miles down the, down the road drunk is good. right? The, the objectively better, of course, would be to not do that at all. So what about the bad? What goes in the negative column? Well, we know that social media use rewires our brains in an almost literal way. Many studies have been done on this subject, and there's quite a lot of confirmation for, for example, the World Psychi Psychi Psychiatric Association's findings that social media causes our brains to experience effects similar to the sort of cognitive de decline that comes with age. Right? It turns us all into a bunch of Joe Bidens. Now, imagine how that works in the, in the developing brain of a child. When social media causes cognitive decline... And it's, this is happening to a brain that is still developing. And imagine how much worse it gets when social media use begins practically at infancy and lasts through a lifetime. You know, when a child's brain, uh, for a lot of us, 
people of my generation, we, we, uh, we were kids and we had a real childhood and our brains formed, you know, um, despite maybe some of the brain damage from jumping off of high, of, of high structures and that sort of thing. Uh, and then the internet came along and messed us up. But at least we had a real childhood first where we did things like go outside and play around and we played tag and dodgeball. We went and ran around in the woods and we, we, you know, we got our, our, our jeans dirty and, and holes in the jeans and stuff like that. And we did all of that. And then the internet came along and robbed us of the rest of our lives and screwed up our brains. And that's bad. But imagine when a child's brain forms around the internet because they are immersed in it from birth practically. We also know that children are highly susceptible, easily influenced. On social media, they're encountering a mechanism designed by multi-billion dollar companies with the express purpose of influencing them, of making them addicted. Letting your kid use social media, it's like letting them loose in a casino to play on the slot machines. Slot machines are expertly designed to put the user into a sort of trance where they lose their free will and continue playing even while they bankrupt themselves and soil their pants. If you've ever been to a casino, by the way, it's always a little bit like scandalous at first. But if you've never been to a casino before and, you, and, you, and, and everything you learn about casinos, you, you learn from uh, Martin Scorsese movies or something like that and, or, or James Bond. And then you go to a casino for the first time and you see that it's this immensely depressing environment where it's just a bunch of mostly people who are over the age of 75 uh, sitting there with their oxygen tanks just staring at, this, at the slot machine uh, barely awake like zombies. They keep pressing this button. They sit there for hours. Well, the slot machine is designed to have that effect. A lot of money went into doing that to people. Social media is meant to induce a similar trance, except it doesn't end when you leave the casino. And also, you know, it's not 75-year-olds using it. It's kids. Add this to all the sexually charged imagery, the violent imagery and all that. Uh, that they're going to be exposed to relentlessly, hour by hour, day by day on social media. And what you end up with is a picture where social media can do nothing but harm them. That's the only thing it can do. It's not going to help them. It's not going to make them a better person. Okay, there's no scenario where you keep your kid from using social media and then uh, they turn 18 years old and you say to yourself, oh man, I wish they had spent more time on Instagram. Okay, no parent is going to look back at their experience as a parent with their child and um, and their in, in, in childhood and say to themselves, I, I you know I, I wish I'd introduced TikTok earlier. No parent is going to say that. A lot of parents are going to say and are saying right now, man, my kid is a zombie. I barely even recognize him. He is totally addicted to this stuff. He has no interest outside of it. His life completely revolves around this screen. He is being consumed by it. I wish I'd kept him away from it. Because it can only harm them. The question is simply, how much will it harm them? And the answer is a lot. And that's why today, I must say that in this dispute, Kim Kardashian is getting canceled. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, 
Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Wall Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodowski. The show is edited by Robbie Dantzler. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Lainey, where have you been? Jessica. I can smell the weakness from here. You had your way. No, stop. Let me out, please. Now you must pay. Don't you touch my kids. Your daughter. She's very pretty. I'm scared.